you've lost all covenantal sense, you've lost all natural sense, and you're in this scary world where um, whoever intends to be the parent is the parent, even if there's not a natural or a genuine wedlock relationship to the child. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I am joined by Pastor Jared Longshaw, and I'm super excited to have him come on the show today. We're going to be talking all things family, all things covenants, and hopefully we're going to get into some really good solutions for the listeners who might be going. It's great to identify the problem, but how do we fix that? Um, So without further ado, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Now, I obviously am very familiar with your work. I'm very familiar with your books uh, and with where you're at in life currently. But you've recently had, well, I'd say in the last couple of years, a big move um, interstate over in America. And I'd love for you, if if you don't mind going into where you're currently at, where you're serving in ministry, um, and I guess what led you to make the big change to this. Yeah, so I currently reside in Moscow, Idaho, up in the northern part of Idaho here at Christ Church. I'm the associate pastor at Christ Church, married to my wife, Heather, with seven children. And I am a fellow of theology and the undergraduate dean at New St. Andrews College, which is also out here in Moscow. Um, And I've been here uh, just over a year and a half and came from Florida, which is all the way across on the other side of the country. And uh, where I uh, served for about, I think, 15 years uh, back back uh, in Florida, I was a um, a minister, but had some shifts in my theology, and I went from credo baptism to pedo baptism. So, uh, and that gets welcome the covenant. <laughs> I would understand how we understand the covenants are um, operating. So, um, a lot of that was behind underneath the recent book that I published with Canon Press called The Case for the Christian Family. Great. So that is a big move um, and also a big transition into pedo baptism. I myself have gone through that transition and I understand it's um, it can be a little bit daunting at the beginning. Um, I grew up with a father who was very Baptist and also very dispensationalist. And now um, I am very pedo Baptist. Uh, covenantal type theology, as well as um, post mill. So I probably big disappointment to my father now, but I must say I'm very much happier for it. And I feel like this is definitely where my home is. Um, This is where I feel most comfortable theologically sitting with these things. But um, very jealous that you're in Moscow, Idaho, Um, very much grieved for that community. So it's great that you're there and that you're a part of it. Um, have read your book as well, and I highly recommend that to people who might be tuning in and listening. Um, and that's sort of why I wanted to have you on because some of the things that you spoke about in your book are things that I don't think we've really given the time um, that it deserves theologically. I think it's just, you know, we all kind of understand things on a basic level, but when you understand the complexities and severity and importance of covenantal theology it just changes your worldview and how you view things um and so before we get into that side of things i wanted to talk about just the breakdown of the world right now as we see you know you look out of the windows of your home and everything looks to be on fire metaphorically speaking divorce rates are at an all-time high um families are broken um fatherlessness and even motherlessness um is is there very absent sort of parents i i find that what the way that i see it is children are almost viewed as an inconvenience and so they use daycare as a form of surrogacy of parenthood um and you've got the elderly who are shoved in homes and basically the state is raising the the uh, younger and the older generations and it's just chaos and I guess my question is, why do you think that this is happening in the world right now? Mm, yeah. Well, boy, there's so many answers to that question, aren't there? <laughs> um, um, but where do we start? There's, um, you know, in Christ, all things consist. He holds all things together. Um, outside of him, everything falls apart. And that's exactly what's happening in our own society. But there are certain hallmarks that we can look to, one being our rampant individualism. Um, of course, we are individuals and, you know, um, 
I am Jared Longshore. My wife is Heather Longshore. And yet that last name um, means something. There's a reason that we do that. But we've lost that, particularly regarding the family, uh, that we, we just don't know what it is anymore. We don't know what marriage is. And therefore, we don't know what the fruit of marriage is. Uh, is, which are those little children that are running around with our images stamped on their face. Uh, we we don't know what, we, we've lost the profundity of, of, of what a family is. So covenant family is a way of trying to um, redeem, recover a way of thinking that is um, beyond mere individualism, where uh, we know, for example, I've said when, when a minister at the end of a traditional wedding says, I now present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Jack Thompson. Um, all of our modern instincts would say, you know, what did he just say? Like, he left her out. Mm -hmm. And um, and the answer is, no, he didn't leave her out because what God has joined together, let man not separate. There is now this entity that God himself has established. Now, if you get rid of God, and, and you just say we're not going to reference him anymore in the schools. We're not going to reference him anymore in our in our um, in our politics. We're not going to reference him anymore in the way that we go about our lives. Now you have to come up with artificial causes for these entities known as families. It's not God, but it's 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 merely something natural. Um, and of course, the problem is that's going to come up short. You're not actually going to uh, you're not going to have what you need to live well in the world. Psalm one twenty seven. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Um, there is something remarkably natural about it because, uh, you know, you can see these characteristics, natural biological characteristics that are passed down to our children. Um, but that is interwoven and even, I would say, dependent upon God himself establishing this entity known as the family. Um, and he's do, he does this, of course, with the state. He does this with education. You can go to any sphere. He does this with, with medicine and health. And that's why we've got the COVID nonsense and we've got all sorts of issues with ethnicity and all sorts of issues with abortion and politics. But particularly regarding the family, you can see the, the removal of Yahweh results in everything falling apart. That's what's happening with the family. Mm, absolutely. I think it was um, Vody Borkham who said um, that we practice way too much divorce culture as well, um, you know, by dating and dating without the intention to marriage. Like like you said at the beginning here, like where do we start? The problems are just endless. Like once you look at a certain sphere, you can go into another one and they're all interlocked and intertwined. But I, I love that you said it literally is just the removing of God from everything you know godlessness obviously is not going to produce good fruit and i think we are the results um of nations and communities even churches that are not bearing good fruit unfortunately so you know it's going to end up yeah. like doug said christ or chaos and we're yes i've tried and, and i think that there there are conservative christians everywhere that will amen that that will nod their head and say yeah we need we need God back in the schools. We need God on all these places. But I don't know that I've, tr I've tried to illustrate. I, I use this illustration in my book. I've tried to illustrate the depth of our problem because those same conservative Christians um, might not recognize that some of that rot is is affecting them. I use the illustration of a um, of four men that walk into a bar, and there's there's Christian man, rational man, postmodern man, and pagan man. And Christian man and rational man both know that the the blue chair in this bar is blue and that it's a chair. But the Christian saying it's it is that way because God made it that way and and sustains it that way. And rational man rejects that. Rational man just says, no, it's self-evident, buddy, you know, that that the chair is blue. Just take it easy with all the God mumbo jumbo. And those two guys can get along because they both are saying that the chair is blue. But as our society has developed for some time now, a third man has walked in, postmodern man, and he says, hey, guys, take it easy. You know, it might be blue to you, but it might be a yellow chair to, or a yellow sofa to somebody else, a green futon to a third guy, just to each their own. Now, that's strange, but that guy's not throwing you in prison. Mm -hmm. um, he's weird. Um, but he's claiming that we can all kind of get along with these different foundational assumptions about the very nature of reality. Um, and that we've been there for a while, but over the last, I would say, 
four, five, eight years. I don't know where you would mark it. I really do believe we're, we've seen a shift into a new phase, which is pagan man walked in and said, no, you're all wrong. That object is a pink elephant and you will acknowledge it to be a pink elephant or off to the gulag with you. Um, you will bake the cake. You will say the pronouns. And so it's it's striking because that's a new development. Mm-hmm. And we were all playing postmodern game. Before that, we were playing rational man game. Now, the Christian has a backbone. The Christian can say, no, no, um, I, I can't use the pronoun because it's not real. And it wouldn't be loving to you or anyone else in this bar to call it a pink elephant. I, I have to call males him. I have to call females her. And I have to call a family a family. I, I can't pretend that someone else's mother or father, the, the divinity himself is what constitutes this reality. And it's for that reason that that you, you know, that you can't have my children. That's at the end of the day. When when the child protective services come knocking on your door and telling you that your children don't belong to you anymore, are you going to reach only for the natural biological? claim like go get the paternity test we'll find out who the dad is um i think that's a good thing i i think that's right there's there's truth to that but i'm saying that that's not enough we actually need to go all all the way back and uh build that out with this idea of covenant um and i can get into more details there with some of the uh there's a fascinating case of pavin v smith um that we could talk about if you want to go in that direction about like how we think about the family the natural family and how how laws mixed into all of that so it's an option if you want to go there yeah i did actually watch an interview that you did about that and basically how parents legally speaking have almost lost all the rights of their children and it was really confronting to actually watch that i mean australia is obviously a different uh, system we have different laws but it's the same problem here and our laws and things are going to be reflecting if they don't already what's happening in america and i remember watching this interview going oh wow these incremental compromises over a period of time uh, might have seemed small in that moment, but have actually landed us in a position where do we actually have rights over our children legally anymore? And what then are the implications of that? And it's quite scary. And so I would, I would love if you could get into that because I think it would be really important for people to be shocked how I was because I was so scared by this uh, whole idea. It just made me go, okay, we we need to change. So yes, please do go into it. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, so and I have a friend, Jeff Schaefer, who I did that interview with, mm. um, who's the director of the Hale Institute out here in Moscow, Idaho as well. But he, um, you know, he, he said this to me at some point, legally speaking, your children don't belong to you anymore. Now he, clarifies, you know, he he qualifies that appropriately saying the law is going to have to work itself out and it's going to have to work itself pure. But he's just saying the tenants, the ideas are already there and he's looking at it going, eventually this is going to happen. Um, and, and I'll have to back up to explain what I mean by that. Um, you have a historical example of um, of children uh, being something something more than just biologically you know identified uh, so you have kind of like the 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 modern talk show you know inappropriate crazy talk show about who's the dad and you know come back after break and we're gonna we had it we did the paternity test we're gonna tell you who the dad is yeah. and that's the way we all think instinctively um the dad is the one who's biologically related to that child but we can, of course, we have this idea of adoption and what is that? Who Who is the father of that child after the adoption? Um, or uh, if, a, if, a, if a woman is married and her husband dies and she has two small children and then she gets remarried, what do you call that guy she she married? Is he the father of those children? And in, in, in what sense is he? Um, so historically speaking, you have examples of... Um, Two categories of child, legitimate and illegitimate. Um, those were the two categories. And you were a legitimate child if you were born in wedlock. 
and you were an illegitimate child if you were born out of wedlock. Now, interestingly, um, say that Jack's married to Jill and Jill becomes pregnant with Bob's child, Bob, adult, an adulterous situation. If Jack and if, if the if the baby still pops up within the marriage, well, that's still a legitimate child. It would be classified as a legitimate child because the child popped up amid wedlock, even though another man was responsible. If you have um, Jack or if you have Jill and Bob not married in a case of fornication, sexual sin outside of wedlock, that child would be an illegitimate child. That's how those those were the way the two categories uh, worked. So with that much established, you say, um, now let's go back to the adultery situation, Jack and Jill, and then Bob is the one who commits adultery with Jill. Well, who's the father? All of our natural instincts say, well, Bob is. He's the one who committed adultery with Jill, right? But um, historically, you would uh, you would naturally incline to say Jack's the father. This child popped up amid a marriage uh, uh, in a woman's womb, um, and he is the head of that woman. She is his body. A child has popped up in what it, what the Bible speaks of as his body, and he has uh, first rights of paternity to that child. Now that's not denying the natural the natural biological relationship with Bob, but it's acknowledging the primacy of marriage, wedlock, in this idea of covenant. That God did a real thing when He joined Jack and Jill together. He constituted a real entity, and when Jill comes pregnant, that's Jack's Jack's one who's the head. Um. So why is why is all of that foundational to to you not having to your children not legally belonging to you? Um, when we messed around with a Burgafell and we acknowledged this thing called same-sex marriage, we didn't know just how bad it was um, and what kind of destruction it would bring to parenting and parental rights. So um, you have this case, Pavin v. Smith. And it was a Supreme Court case here in the States, and it, it came up from Arkansas. Uh, a Burgafell, which was prior to Pavin, said you have to give the same-sex couple all the, – they're married. They have all the rights of marriage. Well, one of the rights of marriage would be parenthood. And there were two ladies that were in a lesbian relationship in Arkansas, and one of them was artificially inseminated with a random man semen. So through artificial reproductive technology, she becomes pregnant. And she's carrying this child in the womb, and she is biologically related to the child, of course. And she says, I want to be listed as a parent on the birth certificate. And Arkansas said, that's fine. Um, but then she said, I want my lesbian partner to be listed as a parent as well. And Arkansas said, no, we're not going to do that. Well, they filed suit, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court looked at Obergefell and said, well, Arkansas, you actually have a code. Arkansas had a standard that said, had this been a heterosexual couple and the woman used artificial reproductive technologies and became pregnant, she would be listed as a as the parent and her husband because of their wedlock. He would be listed as a parent, just like I gave, just like I previously detailed. He would be the, the father. And the Supreme Court said to Arkansas, since you've done that, um, you have to grant this request from this lesbian partner. So the lesbian partner woman can now be listed as a parent of the child. Now, okay, why is that significant? This is such like a big deal for Christians to get. Because the heterosexual couple is really an entity. They are in covenant marriage because they're really in wedlock. That woman is really his body, and she is really pregnant with a child, and he's going to be the head of that child. But it, in 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 the case of the lesbian couple, it's a legal fiction. There is no natural relationship between this woman and the child, nor is there a natural relationship between this man over here and the child. But there is a real covenantal, divinely established and constituted relationship, an entity known as the family, and he has a right to be the head then, but there is no such thing here. 
And if you start granting that kind of thing, oh, we're going to make people parents who have no covenantal and no natural relationship, then what really is causing them to be the parent? It's just flat will. It's just flat manipulation. It's flat intention. And so the idea is like intent-based parenting is now a thing. So the 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 judicial, the, the way the law is going to shake out is it's going to say, well, who intends to be the child of this parent? Um, and of course, that is leaving it up to the human will. And you might say, well, I'll be okay because I want to, I intend to be the child's parent. So I'll be good. I, I intend to be child to my own parent, my own kids. I intend to be parent to my own kids. Well, great. But what happens if somebody whose voice needs to be elevated above yours says that, she intends to be parent to your mm -hmm. child and you're a straight white man. And you know, you don't, you're what you intend doesn't have, carry as much weight as what somebody else intends. So if you've lost all covenantal sense, you've lost all natural sense and you're in this scary world where um, whoever intends to be the parent is the parent, even if there's not a natural or a genuine wedlock relationship to the child. Mm. Yeah, you, you sort of went into uh, in this interview that you mentioned where you go into all of these things, um, how there's like an old law system and we're sort of entering like a new sort of law system and the two systems are incompatible with one another and they're at war with one another. Would you say that the war is over or would you say that we're in the battle right now where the two systems of traditional, natural, more sort of laws are fighting against this new sort of system. Yeah. I would characterize that question by saying, you know, as the Lord said to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Um, can, can they live? And so I think we're, we're dead and we need new hearts. We need to be born again. I think Romans one has come to pass. It says we've turned away from worshiping the creator to worship the creature and immediately in the wake of that, it says the Lord gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, to have a debased mind is to have this. Is why I think this is where I think this. Like when you people say online, like you're based. When like you know, oh, that's so based. What you said, I think they're actually like longing. They they want a grounding again because they're everyone's experiencing clown world. Um, but that so that has happened once once the mind has been debased, they did what was contrary to nature. OK, so you um, men with men, women with women, that was the wake of that And the same kind of things happening here. I mean, it's contrary to nature itself to mm -hmm. just say, well, I can contract someone else to provide me the resources necessary in order to have a child. You know, like uh, detaching all of that from the marital union is is creepy C.S. Lewis, that hideous strength, scientism levels. So I think that we're I don't think our our solution um, is an easy one, but we do have a God who raises the dead. And so I say, yeah, can the dry bones live? Yeah, they can live. But we are certainly going to need the new birth that is going to then result in um, transformed minds and hearts so that we can begin to operate again according to nature. Mm. Yeah, truth definitely ha has to have a place in law. And I think if we get rid of truth <laughs> out of law, we're going to end up, <clears throat> excuse me, in this chaotic place that we're in. We're going to, you know, lose rights of our children and it's going to escalate from there. But I think I would I would love to get into like what you mentioned solutions. How are we going to raise these dry bones? Obviously, we can only do that with God. Um, but before we sort of nut out the covenantal theology, I thought it might be good to just define what a covenant is for people who might be unfamiliar with that particular term, because there are all different other names and, and definitions and versions, but I thought it'd be good just to start at the very basic level of what a covenant is. Yes. Yeah. You think that would be an easy question to answer. And yet, uh, if you read books on covenant, you know, you're like, wow, there's just a lot here. Um, yeah, I'm just discovering this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, diatheke is the Greek. It's used like 30 plus times in the New Testament. Barith is the Hebrew used 
a um, couple hundred plus times in the in the Old Testament. So it's a very common biblical word. Um, and I think the primary reason we have trouble with it is because of our individualistic assumptions. Covenant implies, um, you know, more than one. Um, and uh, I should say, so let's start with there are different kinds of covenants. So when I refer to covenant marriage, that's based on Malachi 2. And I talk about that in my book. So um, I think the covenantal solution to the dissolving American family was the subtitle of my book. And I talk about uh, covenant marriage. I want to start there because it's kind of the easier one to grasp. Um, in Malachi 2, uh, God is rebuking uh, Judah and saying, these men have gone have forsaken the wife of thy covenant. Um, and, well, what does that mean? That means um, God actually bound you together. So go back to the illustration where I say God is making the chair blue. He's the one who constituted the chair. Um, and then you do the same thing with marriage. God made, God God bound these two people together and made them a thing. So covenant is that is that action. In covenant marriage, uh, it's not merely, uh, marriage is not merely the product of the will of the parties involved. Because uh, you, you say, well, I vowed and then my wife vowed. Uh, and so there it is. Well, if that's all it was, then when the two the two men that are practicing homosexuality do it, it would work. If it's nothing but the product of the will of the parties involved, the vows, then it would work, right? But it doesn't work. God, it's not just a marriage that God doesn't bless. It's not a thing. God didn't make it. God, God didn't bind it and create it. Um, another way of thinking about covenant marriage would be to say if if two guys enter into a business deal. Um, and then they, they they actually sign the contract and everything. They walk away, and the next day, both both of them have no need for that business deal. Like something happens uh, that adjusts the scenario. They can come back the next day, shake hands, call the deal off. It does, it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for me. No sin, no harm, no foul. Okay, now Jack and Jill get married. Two days later, it's not working out for either of them. No kids involved, nothing. Um you know, can we call it off? And the answer is no. And you say, okay, well, why not? Now you're getting to the thing, the essence of a covenant, because that's a covenant. The other was a contract. I mean, God saw it. God was providentially involved in your contract, but it's not binding of a nature that you can't get out of it. A marriage covenant is more than just your vow. It's God actually, God is, God says I, to Judah in, in Malachi 2, he says, I was witness between you and the wife of your youth. And that language is signaling not only that I watched it, I'm the one, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So that is, um, that's the way of describing a marriage covenant. It's this bond that God himself um, constitutes, right, in, in marriage between man and woman. But then uh, you have to say, is that, what, what other kind of difference do you see? Well, see multiple times in scripture that God speaks of having a bride himself. And that's where things get really interesting for like modern material. I'm familiar with Ephesians 5, probably if you're Christians, you know, the marriage I'm telling you, it corresponds to Christ and the church. And we think of it like um, John Piper has a, has a, a great little book. You know, I disagree with him on things with uh, things with marriage, but it's still a helpful thing, like um, a parable of permanence. Um, your 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 marriage is a story about this permanent reality between Christ and His bride, and I think a lot of Christians know that they think that way. Like, yes, the husband represents Christ, and the wife represents the bride of Christ, the church. As as Christ loves his bride, so I need to love my bride. As the church respects Christ, so the 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 woman needs to respect her husband. But it's a detached kind of thing. But the question is, what if you got this covenant and you have God married to his bride by way of covenant? What then is God's relationship to his bride? If a husband is genuinely bound, and, and now there's this new entity that exists. That same kind of thing happens in what we would call the covenant of grace, which is um, God condescending to actually create and constitute a people over and to whom which he says, I am your God and you are my people. Um, 
So I try to illustrate that. I illustrate that with an ice cream shop. Now, whether that's the best illustration or not, I don't know, but it's the best one I can come up with. Um, that you actually have this entity. You have you have people that are inside the ice cream shop, right? Um, eating the ice cream that is Christ, eating the ice cream by faith. And you're in the shop, and the banner over the shop says, I'm your God, you are my people. There's this house. Uh, Hebrews speaks of it this way. Moses was a servant over God's house, and now Christ is this better servant than Moses over a house. Bible talks that way in Ephesians, uh, in the book of Ephesians, that we're like living stones, we're the temple of God. What is this entity that the Lord keeps talking about? Well, it's the church, and that church is in covenant with God. God has condescended and promised um, eternal life through Jesus Christ. All throughout the history of redemption, he's done this. He's had a people on earth that are his covenant people. So it's more than the covenant of grace is more than a promise, um, but it's not less than a promise. It's God saying, God cutting covenant, saying there's the shedding of blood involved, and in that he's establishing these people that are his people on earth. All of that bound up in the idea of covenant. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. Um... It is very complex, especially when you start to think about covenantal families as well. Um, and, you know, the complexities, particularly, I think as well, the responsibility of the head of those families, which is the man, which is the father. Um, and going through your book and, and doing some other studies around that, like, wow, like us women complain that we have a head over us, but I do not want that responsibility, especially understanding uh, covenantal theology. Like that is a huge, huge thing. Um, and so, you know, obviously families start with marriage, you know, you, like that. that's where families begin because the fruit of the marriage is offspring and then that you then become, you know, you have little little uh, eternal souls that you are responsible for. So, you know, I think that the breakdown of the family um, and things like that, part of it is because people don't understand the covenant that they've entered into. And I think that part of that is um, people also don't understand the severity and the responsibility of that covenant as well. But what does it so you've talked a little bit about covenantal marriage and how they're bound and the reflection of Christ and his church, his bride. What is then a covenantal family? Could you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, it's a bit tricksy, isn't it, when you say covenant family? Because um, the question would be, um, are you merely referring to the fact that I'm in a covenant marriage with my wife and that my family is an entity. Um, or are you doing this whole Abraham Presbyterian Pato Baptist thing <laughs> where you're going to say God entered into a covenant with Abraham and his offspring and his children and his seed. And there was a covenant sign. It was circumcision. And not only was Abraham circumcised, but as his sons were as well, signifying that they were in the covenant with him. Not only did Abraham have a covenant family, but then that covenant of grace hit that family in such a way that the whole house was in the covenant of grace. That's very Pado-Baptist stuff. So um, we're in this interesting place of our individualism is causing us to kind of think through again what the what an entity of the family is. And then once you have an entity, like once you have this, oh, the family is a thing, the longshores are a thing, you know, then, okay, well, if God deals with the head, what do you do then? Uh, in the book of Acts, when the, when, you know, um, Paul and Silas are in prison and, you know, God opens the gates, the Philippian jailer is going to, going to kill himself because he's, he's going to die anyway. And he comes to them and says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. Mm. And you say, whoa, what in the world is that? Um, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I was in like evangelical circles for a long time, like altar calls and that kind of thing. And I was like, I've never in my life have I heard somebody say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house. And you're like, do they have warrant to offer that kind of promise to this head? 
Like that's, you know, isn't it like, well, you should preach that to the Philippian jailer. And then you have to go, you can preach the same message to the children, and, but it's it's a one by one kind of thing. And, uh, and indeed, that's what they, in the text, they go to and they preach the word to the whole house. So that needs to be acknowledged. But the point still remains that when they, the first message they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved in your house. So that house language is covenant language. Uh, Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, well, did you go check with every single member of the house before saying so? Or was there, did you have this idea that, that you're a, you're a block, you're a unit? Job offering sacrifices for his children. Is that the kind of thing that a man can do? Can he can he intercede in that kind of way for for the whole household, even the littlest among them? Is there a is there a categorical change um, in the children when dad or mom? Uh, if you look at First Corinthians seven, right, children being holy. Is there a change in their status before God? Do they come into the covenant? Do they come into that ice cream shop that I mentioned um, via God's covenant promises, just saying this is how God deals with people in the world? And then a lot of things begin to make sense because that's how God dealt with Adam. That's how God dealt, right? God, Adam fell and all of his posterity fell in him uh, and with him. So you get it. You see that the covenantal arrangements is how God has dealt uh, in the world. So when you say, "What is a covenant family?" Uh, like I, I joked, it's a bit tricksy because you start. Is it just the idea that the longshores are a block, or is it is is involved in that phrase? The longshores are a block, and if dad or mom come to Christ, then the then the little ones as a block come with them into covenant with God. The immediate question is, of course. Um, are you saying those little children can go to heaven without trusting Jesus Christ and being born again, right? And the answer would be no. That's not what you know, that's not what uh, the Pado Baptist view is saying. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, we're calling we call them covenant children, and the covenant is kept by faith, and they must be born again. They must experience the new birth. They must trust the Lord Jesus Christ. But what you're saying is they're not in the category of of pagan. They're not in the category of outside of the people of God. They are uh, among the people of God. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, they're uh, members of the visible church. They're actually, it's not like they just go to church. They actually are um, the church. They're members of the church, of the body of Christ. So um, I think at the end of the day, all of that extra juice is in the idea of a covenant family. Mm. Well, when you start looking at covenantal families, like you mentioned, it's it's literally riddled throughout the entire Bible. You have Adam and his offspring with that covenant, and then it goes through Noah and his children and you know that covenant, and then it goes to Abraham and his children, Jacob and his children, and you know, it, well, it, it goes through everything, um, and it's always, yeah, the families always mentions like children, like the blessings always go to the children of these men that God enters covenants with. Um, But it is also interesting because a lot of people freak out when you say that, like you mentioned, because there are, there are some great ministers out, you know, in, in the world who have unsaved children. And then a lot of people go, well, what, hang on a second. What does that mean? Is this pagan gonna go to heaven because their dad's in a pulpit preaching the bible so i'm glad you sort of explained that because i know that i a lot of people would probably have that question well what does it mean for unbelieving children of a covenantal sort of family um so keeping all of this in mind um and, and keeping in mind you know covenantal theology what does a christian family um have to be responsible for in raising their children in the covenant? How does that work out practically for us today if we want to raise our children in that way? Yeah, right at the center of it, the the heart of it, um, is that you have to raise them um, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which the Bible says. Uh, And I, I want to add, taking all of what Scripture teaches, by faith. This covenant thing is all about faith, um, and it's say you know I think in, in a simple way you could you could pitch it to a dad of like 
you got a little three-year-old and you got a little one-year-old pitch it to dad and mom and say all right do you trust the lord for their salvation are you trusting god to richly bless them to love them through his son jesus christ to keep them sustain them are you trusting god for those things um are you trusting god for the spirit to work powerfully in their lives are you trusting god for their children and their children's children to a thousand generations or do you actually do you have uh, promises from god and warrant from god for that kind of faith that's what you that's that's the heart of what um what you need to raise children faithfully that's the opposite of covenantal presumption right um covenantal presumption says god's going to bless my children whether i trust him or not whether i obey him or not so it extracts faith and obedience and just says look the kids are in you know whatever uh, that's not that's covenantal presumption and uh, many many people have fallen into that kind of thing uh, and jesus looked at him said you know god can raise up children from these stones you know you say you're children of abraham and then they say you say abraham's your father no your father's the devil like he he mm -hmm. goes right to that kind of covenantal presumption um but the other danger i think is more prevalent particularly in in the states and just kind of in conservative evangelicalism and that is i don't know that people are uh i don't know that people have thought through whether they can actually trust the lord for the things i just detailed they feel like that would be presumption to trust god because they're not sure that god has promised that they're not sure right that that that, that kind of blessing and um and some of that is because they think well it's just mainly an old testament thing they see a lot of that in the old testament like when god says to abraham in genesis 17 i will be god to you and to your children after you mm. you at least have to say well for abraham that was certainly a part of the package deal like he was he he had to trust god because god told him that's what he's gonna do but then you go on in the bible and you say oh well there isaiah says these people my elect are the seed of the blessed of the lord and their offspring with them that's Isaiah. I don't have the chapter and verse right offhand. Latter chapters of Isaiah. So, but that is a quote from the text. And you say that's so. They are the the mine elect, and somebody's going, "Well, that's that's me." Are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them? You say, "Well, you're trusting God for that, right?" Or I will do good to them, even uh, the new covenant, Jeremiah 32. Maybe this is where this text is. Um, I will do all of this. I'll give them a new heart uh, for the good of them and for the good of their children after them. And so you start to see, oh, the Bible speaks this way. And then the new covenant, of course, Peter at Pentecost, you know, uh, for the promises for you and for your children. Mm -hmm. And again, that kind of language, he's not, you know, Peter didn't say the promises are for you. And hey, you kids, it's for you too, right? He could have said that. Maybe he said that, but that's not the way it's recorded in Scripture. It's the promises are for you and for your children. He's still talking to the parents, and he's telling them something about the promises, the nature of the promise for their children, which they need to be believing, right? It's like, I believe promises for me. Yes, promises for my children, too. Okay, I believe that, too, then. Mm. So, so the heart of the matter is faith. You have to trust God. And our parental problems come from a lack of faith in two ways. One. You know, they do things that are naughty. They're little kids. And so they do things that are naughty. And one parent um, just, just spazzes out. You know, they just get so nervous. And they're just like, oh, my goodness, this child is a pagan. This child is not going to be <laughs> a man of God. This child is, you know, all of God's promises, all of his generational promises are down, you know, the hatch. Um, and they that's not trusting the Lord. You need to like stop it. Stop it. This is the way God builds his people. The promise is not that they're going to be glorified at the age of eight. That's not mm -hmm. what the promise is. Um, but you do have you do have real promises that you have to trust the Lord for. The opposite um, is still a lack of faith. The opposite is the covenantal presumption idea. Well, you just let them run wild. Like you don't train them, you don't discipline them, you don't talk to them, you don't teach them, you don't tell them about the goodness of the Lord, you don't gather taking them with worship and and have them know that what they are, they're a part of God's people and they're raised as such and expected to act as such. 
You just, you neglect all of that. Well, what is that? That's a lack of faith. It's the same thing. You're actually, you're not trusting the Lord. You know, you're just kind of operating in life, um, thinking that your kids are going to be okay, but you're not actually doing what Joshua said and what Job said. So I think the the key hallmark of how you are to raise your children is in the faith. And then you could add to that all of your standard parental duties of catechism and mm-hmm. repentance and faith, and singing psalms and taking them to church and, you know, training them. I do believe the uh, here's an example of like when it comes to discipline. When you're when you're going to discipline a, you know, a four year old. um when that's when that's happening, the covenantal idea is, you know, hey buddy, you're on team, okay, you're on team, you're a Christian, you know what you are, um, loved by God, uh, loved by me, and this is training, okay. When you get a little bit older and you're playing football or rugby, it's going to be you know running sprints. This is the kind of thing you're going to do when you make a you know, and you run sprints because you're on the team. Okay, if you jump off sides in football, you're going to have to do push-ups, and you're doing that because you're on the team. And so it's all couched within that as training. This is training and discipline. If you don't have the covenant, things can get squirrely. Because then what are you doing? Like You'd say, well, I'm still training them. Okay, but are you just training them like naturally? Like, is it just a natural you know, it's not so much about the heart. It's just about like kind of conformity, just kind of do what, do what we say. Um, you don't want to do that kind of thing, you know? Um, and you don't want to think, well, I'm spanking them so that they'll know how bad that they are so that they'll come to Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, well, uh, you know, you could, and I think a lot of people run it that way. And, um, there is a, there's a truth in it, baked in that kind of idea. But if that's taken out of the context of covenant and God's steadfast love and who you are, like, yeah, I mean, there's needs to be a sobriety to it. But if you're if you're doing that and the kid's doing that, thinking that the kid's outside, like you're entirely outside, and that's why you're doing these naughty things, because you're outside, you know, you know, that that's gonna flavor your discipline in a really bad way. So that's at least a little bit of application of, of the covenant to discipline. Mm. And I think it's it's a it's a good way to to look at it for sure. As you were saying it, then I was going, oh, yes, I should keep that in mind um, definitely for the future and how um, you know you're raising your families and your kids just so that they know that they're part of the team. They're not outside of that circle. I think that's a healthy way. I think that discipline should come from a place of love. Um, and I think part of that is by including them in that covenant for sure. And so that they know that that's their home. They're part of that covenant. They're not excluded from it. Um, so yeah, that was really good. I think uh, I'd love it. I wasn't going to, but I feel like I almost feel it might be necessary to talk about where baptism has a place in this covenantal theology because, and family, because as you said, you know, the uh, you know, the promises have been made to you and your offspring. So the big debate about credo or pedo, um, I'm not expecting to go into all of that because we don't have 12 hours, but um, you transitioned from one to the other, just like myself. Um, was it covenantal theology that saw you change your position on that and my follow-up question for that would be, what would you say to people who are uncertain whether they should baptize their children or not? Yeah. Well, okay, so it was definitely the covenant that did it for me. Um, but th- it gets a little interesting because you can, um, if you would have asked me back when I was a Baptist, you know, <laughs> hey, are your children holy? And uh, I'd say, yeah. I just, you know, right up the middle. Like, uh, I didn't have any hesitations about it. Um, when we would do family worship, you know, I mean, we're all singing to our God. Um, we would do a catechism question. Uh, Christ executes the office of a priest. 
and his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. You know, and then, you know, I'm looking around the table going, this is true for every human here. And that was the, I, I would use the plural, you know, I didn't use the like, you know, well, you know, um, God has given us his spirit and that's like me and your mom and the oldest kid who's baptized, but it doesn't have, you know, but not you yet. You, you, those kind of, you know, it, there was a corporate understanding of the, of the family worship. And I think there's a lot of people that are there in that camp where they're like, I'm not so sure this means I need to baptize my child, but I get this idea of like being a covenant people and God loving us and my children being insiders, not outsiders. And I'm going to raise them in the faith, not in the doubts. Like I'm going to raise them in the faith. And that's really the most important thing to me. And then, and then I think the more, the, the more you live there, you're like, yeah, this water thing makes sense. I and mean, at the end of the day, it's a it's tying it to Abraham's covenant. So you have Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision, and it was given to the infants. So, kind of doctrinally speaking, a little technically speaking, if you, if you if you believe that the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace, if you believe that in that covenant he is covenanting eternal life to Abraham and to his offspring. And the sign of his promise is circumcision, and it's for Abraham and his offspring. Then that goes over to us, new covenant. He's promising us eternal life and our children. And the new sign is baptism, and that should go to us and to our children. That's the that's the I think that's the central case for baptism. You could argue more kind of. Um, kind of a full sense of scripture in the sense that Israel came out of Egypt and was baptized in the sea and all of the little ones were baptized in the sea and God fed them with bread from heaven and that bread from heaven um old school you have Passover immediately after that both the bread from heaven and Passover the little infant the little ones ate and so you have this idea of baptism and communion being for the whole covenant people and you can argue those kinds of things too those people might find those compelling um so I would say, start with the covenantal thing and say, okay, I'm going to raise my children in the faith. I know that they're loved by God. I'm going to trust God for them. And then if you, you know, if you come around on baptism, great. And if you don't, you know, that's not going to be, uh, that's not a major worry uh, on my end. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those um, great luxuries that we have amongst believers is that there are these issues around baptism, which we can kind of discuss together. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that if you're baptized or not, it means you're going to heaven or hell. Um, and, you know, I think obviously um, when you have a conviction or a conscience matter, if you choose to go against that, that's obviously a sin. But, um, yeah, it's certainly a subject I love to discuss with my Baptist uh, brothers and sisters. It's um, I, I sympathize for that position because that's where I came from, so I can understand it. But, yeah, definitely have transitioned over to Pado for sure, so I'm happy I'm in that sort of camp. Um, and I just wanted to sort of finish up by sort of saying, you know, covenantal theology is the opposite to dispensational theology. And I, I view it that way because I see covenantal theology as one that is very hopeful, one that fully trusts in the promises of God. Um, and I think covenantal theology can be really encouraging for families, especially like I mentioned, when you're looking outside of the four walls of your home and you see the world on fire. I find covenantal theology is the solution and the safeguard for us as Christians in this world. Um, what would you say to families who are struggling at the moment and um, who feel like they don't have safeguards and they don't know how to press on? What would you say to them in light of covenantal theology and possibly as something that could encourage them um, to face the chaos of the world at the moment? Mm. You know, I would say look at the look at the big story of the Bible and what God has done um, amid things getting bad 
So this is very much kind of like a St. Augustine's book, The City of God. The city of God is within this city of man. And then I believe that that city of God is growing and taking over the whole earth. Knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you go all the way back to Adam. I mean, it really can't be worse than like the moment after the fall. So (laughs) however bad it is, like, can you imagine being Adam and Eve then? Mm. And what does God do? Like he goes and finds them. And then he condescends to make a covenant of grace with them, even then, and says, You're, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And then blood, because he clothes them with skin. So we have the first, I believe that's the first cutting of the covenant of grace. It's like a proto-circumcision. And, and it goes to him. And of course, when Adam had his children, reason by analogy here, that would be the same kind of thing, cutting and clothing. God loves you. You're protected kind of thing. And, and he just does it all the way through. Uh, Abraham does it there. Things get wild in Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt, comes and covenants again with them at Mount Sinai, giving them the law when they certainly needed that law. Things get wild. In once they've conquered the land, he condescends to make a covenant with David when they certainly needed that. He gives them a monarch. He gives them protection and provision. Um, and then when things had grown, grown unruly again, what does he do? He condescends and through through the virgin's womb comes the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant. And then Christ has all these glorious promises, like he's going to bind up the strong man so that he can plunder his house. And he says, that's like now, now is the God of this world cast out. And you say, okay, you mean like 2,000 years ago? And you're like, yep, that's right. Um, He rules and reigns. He's ascended into heaven after rising from the dead and given us his spirit. I mean, so the fact that you have this Pentecost, the spirit marking out the covenant community after the, I mean, the spirit was operative in the old, but now he's marked out this covenant, these people um, and his banner over them is love. You are my people. I am your God. And then he told those people to go and, teach the nations to obey Jesus Christ, baptizing them. You say, well, that's the direction things are going to go. So if 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 things in my experience are running contrary to that, it's much like the case with your kid who's being naughty. Okay, well, who's in charge? The little naughty kid or God? Whose promises are right? Whose words are true? The, the little naughty kids or God's? Who's, whose words are true? The chaos of our, you know, of all the social insanity that we're undergoing in this spasmic moment um, or the promises that God has made to us by way of covenant and signed and sealed those right to us in, in the, in the sacrament, all of that just kind of, boy, it stabilizes you and can help you to go. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. He's going to fulfill every last one of his promises in his son, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yes, amen. And I I am one to believe in the success of the gospel. And I have found that there are a lot of pessimistic Christians who don't acknowledge how successful it has been, how it has spread. Um, and I do think that the way forward is to not, um, I think it was Doug maybe who said, he always has great analogies, doesn't he? He gets those like pictures and you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But he said, you know, a lot of Christians say to not pol- polish the cutlery on a sinking ship. Um, I don't think that we're on a sinking ship. I don't think that at all. And so I'm going to keep polishing the cutlery. And I think we do that through covenantal families. So have as many babies as you can. Don't not have them because you think that uh, this is going to be it. And I think it was Doug again who said, plant the orange trees. You might not be able to, you know, eat the fruit, but your kids' kids will be able to um, take the fruit and make orange juice from it. Um, and so I love that picture. Um, your book was wonderful. I feel like today we barely even scratched the surface of, you know, what a Christian family is in covenantal theology. It is a very, like you said, it can be quite tricky. Um, it seems simple, but it, it's not. And there's a lot more involved. And your book does an amazing job as well as you did a series um, that's on the Canon Plus app as well, where you interview mm-hmm different people about themes and things. And I highly recommend that. But um, for those who are listening who haven't read the book, where can they grab a copy of it? So I think it's available on Amazon. You could go there. It's also available through Canon uh, Press. So you could go to um, their website and order it directly from them if you'd like. 
Hmm. Well, I do recommend it. Um, I'm sort of going through it and yeah, it completely changes the lens that you view the world and the lens that you view the Christian family through. And um, it's a, a real blessing, to be honest. It's been, it's been a real blessing. So I thank you for encouraging us um, with those things and challenging us with those ideas again um, and taking the time to write these very tricky subjects and trying to articulate it. So thank you so much for as well joining me today for going through um, some of these complex ideas and putting it out there for our viewers. Um, are you on social media? Can people follow you? Do you Are you part of that or do, have you tapped out of that sort of place? Yeah, no, I'm on all of those things. So I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and um, and then I blog at a site called jaredrlongshore.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to put the links uh, at the bottom of this episode so people can go and follow you. But thanks again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And uh, God bless you and your family and all the work and ministry that you're doing. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks.